Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. In today's episode of Critical Matters, we will discuss the critical care management of the patient with anaphylaxis. Our guest is Dr. Guha Krishnaswamy. Dr. Krishnaswamy is a professor of medicine in the section of pulmonary critical care, allergy and immunology, and the section of infectious diseases in the Wake Forest School of Medicine. He is also chief of the section of allergy, asthma, and immunology at the Bill Hefner VA Hospital and affiliated clinics in Salisbury, North Carolina. He is board certified in internal medicine and allergen clinical immunology. His research interests include primary immune deficiencies in adults, anaphylaxis, angioedema, among other topics. Dr. Krishnaswamy has published over 160 manuscripts that have appeared in numerous, numerous peer-reviewed journals, including Critical Care Medicine, the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Chest, and Science. He is the author of two books and has contributed to over 30 book chapters in the area of inflammation biology. It's a real pleasure and honor to have him today to talk about this important topic. Guha, welcome to Critical Matters. Uh, Sergio, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So very, it's always very encouraging to talk about topics that are not related to COVID lately, although obviously anaphylaxis also came to the forefront in the news with the first COVID vaccination. So I guess we'll, we'll have to touch on COVID at one point, no matter what. But I really wanted to, to start, Guha, with maybe a general definition of anaphylaxis and some specific, specific criteria in terms of diagnostics. So um, the uh, definition of anaphylaxis has evolved over time. Um, it's an ancient disease. And uh, in the last uh, couple of decades, there have been uh, meetings of minds, uh, if you will, across the world and large uh, conferences uh, dedicated to defining and developing a consensus uh, uh, over asthma guidelines. And much of our presentation today will be a glimpse into this, uh, Sergio. So the uh, definition, a good definition of anaphylaxis is uh, it's an acute onset illness characterized by involvement of skin, respiratory, GI, and cardiovascular systems in various combinations. So that's an important thing to uh, remember uh, and that uh, raises two caveats. One is that cardiopulmonary involvement is often the cause of fatality, whether it's angioedema of the airways or whether it's uh, hypovolemia, distributive shock, a mixed shock leading to pump failure uh, and end organ dysfunction, almost like a multi-organ dysfunction syndrome uh, that you see in stage and fatal anaphylaxis cases. The second aspect is that uh, there are patients where you don't have skin involvement. So up to 10 to 20% of patients don't have pruritus, don't have hives, don't have itching, don't have the skin lesions. And so the diagnosis might present with just hypotension or severe bronchospasm that's been seen in food anaphylaxis cases. And so that uh, uh, caveat needs to be kept in mind. The second aspect of the definition is the mechanistic definition. And it is a result of a massive and rapid release of mediators from perivascular residence cells around the blood vessels called mast cells, discovered initially by Paul Ehrlich. And mast cells came from the word mastose, 
uh, meaning breasts. So they were very laden with granules. And now we know that these granules contain a variety of mediators that um, result in the manifestations we see as clinical anaphylaxis. When we think of, of classifying anaphylaxis, I know a lot of times we have people talk about the recurrence of symptoms or the phases, the severity. What are the current classifications that you think are most useful to have as a framework clinically? So if you look at the um, uh, um, presentation of anaphylaxis, um, you can classify it by severity. Um, and, and many patients, the majority of patients come into the ER, they're being stung by a bee or uh, the mother brings the patient, uh, a child in, uh, very anxious because the child ate a peanut sandwich by mistake and is known to be allergic to peanuts. And he was complaining of feeling a little warm and flushed and it was developing some hives and she brought him to the ER. So a lot of them are acute anaphylaxis, uh, but relatively mild. Uh, but it can go along a cascade of events to fulminant or fatal anaphylaxis, severe refractory anaphylaxis. So the initial classification uh, for, for uh, purposes of management would be, is this a mild anaphylaxis or is this more severe disease with lung and heart involvement and hypertension or near fatal anaphylaxis, anaphylaxis where the patient is hypoxemic and close to moribund or cardiorespiratory arrest. So that's the first classification. The second classification that evolved over the last two decades is that uh, when clinicians observe the presentation uh, in the hospitals and emergency rooms, they noticed that some people got better on their own in a couple of hours, probably three to six hours. They were observed in the ER, and the ER doc came by in six hours and said, hey, you're all fine, Harry. I think you can go home now and uh, give them a prescription for an EpiPen and uh, uh, some instructions to go and see the PCP after they got discharged, sent them home on some steroids, perhaps. And uh, this is called uniphasic anaphylaxis or um, monophasic anaphylaxis, where uh, if you think of it as a peak, it's a single peak. So boom, med uh, med uh, mediators are released, patient comes in, itchy, uh, hivey, uh, complaining of some sore throat, uh, hoarseness, dinophagia, difficulty swallowing, uh, starts developing a little wheeze. He gets a couple of doses of epinephrine, some Benadryl, he gets a breathing treatment, he gets some uh, bolus of fluids, and he's sitting up and he's asking the ER doc, when can I go home? So that's the uniphasic or monophasic. Now, um, people started no noticing that uh, in allergic responses, even in asthma, you'll find what's called a late phase response. And this happens several hours after the initial event. So they started describing a phenomenon known as biphasic anaphylaxis. And biphasic anaphylaxis initially was thought to be 30, 40, 50% of all cases. And then as we got more and more data, and started looking across wider swaths of the population, we realized that the incidence is probably between four and 20%. In some studies, as low as 3% uh, incidence of biphasic. And what is biphasic? Biphasic is a second wave of mediator release that happens after the first event, sometimes six hours after the first event, but in the, absent of the absence of the inciting allergen. So the allergen does not have to be there but the uh, mass will still go through a second wave of immediate release. The danger of that is, and this is what we, uh, in education, when we talk to the ERs and we talk and we give lectures to residents and fellows who are going to out and practice, we tell them, if you have a significant anaphylactic event and there's urticaria, angioedema, lip swelling, uh, alterations in uh, 
and hypovolemia uh, manifestations, blood pressure uh, manifestations, then it's safest to keep the patient in for a longer period for observation, either a 24-hour admit or keep the patient in the ER if you don't have beds in the hospital for at least 12 hours because a second wave, if this were to happen at 2 a.m. at night um, and result in uh, permanent airway obstruction, the patient probably might die in sleep or might not be able to get to the hospital in time. And that's no, a very important point, I guess, Guha, I just want to emphasize, right? Because we don't have good tools to predict who's at risk for a secondary phase. So ultimately, we base it on severity. And that's the type of patients that usually will come to the ICU for a 24-hour or overnight observation. Very true, Sergio. And uh, some data suggesting that delayed administration of epinephrine, we'll come back, back to this as a theme. Uh, one of the failures in anaphylaxis management and why they land up with you guys is that the, uh, uh, the, the diagnosis is not made early um, or it's misdiagnosed as an acute allergic reaction and not classified as anaphylaxis that happens almost in 30 to 40% of some large ER uh, emergency room uh, studies, uh, or the epinephrine is given uh, late into the uh, illness uh, and Benadryl and steroids are given promptly. And so uh, a gentleman called Novak, a physician up in, uh, who ran a uh, cluster of emer emergency rooms up in uh, the East Coast, he did a study where he went and educated people in all his ERs. He had about 12 ERs in a large hospital system and told them about uh, late phase reactions, biphasic reactions, and the use of epi, early use of EpiPen. And what they found, he, he did a, this as a study and pre and post uh, education, there was a dramatic drop in biphasic disease, dramatic drop in hospitalization, a dramatic increase in the use of EpiPen as the first uh, um, medication introduced, and a great drop in Benadryl and steroids, which became second uh, uh, tier medications and uh, the outcomes were very good. So it's a very important point to keep in mind, uh, Sergio. And the third important aspect is that uh, a very small fraction, these are the ICU flyers, and these are the patients who have what we uh, regard as um, malignant or fulminant anaphylaxis or severe anaphylaxis. And a subset of these severe anaphylaxis patients will evolve into what's called refractory anaphylaxis almost seamlessly. And this happens during um, the transition and the management and the handing over, the patient is not responding to two or more doses of EpiPen and you call them uh, refractory anaphylaxis. They're often in the ICU, many of them get intubated or many of them uh, uh, go on pressors or even ECMO. Sergio? Excellent. And we, we talked about um, some of the definitions, obviously introductory classification, but can we dive a little bit more, uh, Guha, into the epidemiology of anaphylaxis that ends up coming to the ICU? And specifically, uh, I don't really know about the numbers, but I, I do presume that every one of our listeners has seen an anaphylaxis case recently, and it's something that we see every year, obviously maybe not every day or every week, but certainly see these cases. But I'm more interested maybe in the, the causes that lead to, to anaphylaxis, risk factors for severe anaphylaxis requiring the ICU. And I think you already identified a very important one, which is failure to institute epinephrine treatment early, right? But there might be yes. others. And then also, if you could make specific comments on perioperative anaphylaxis, which seems to be obviously a topic that, that, that comes to the ICU very frequently. Yes. So if you look at anaphylaxis in general, it's increasing globally. Uh, every country, uh, has uh, demonstrated increases in the 
incidence and the prevalence of anaphylaxis in their populations. Now, one could be a better understanding of the disease, better diagnosis, uh, and also better recognition of the disease. But also remember that we have more drugs. Uh, a lot of patients are getting outpatient uh, uh, IV infusions, uh, home therapies, and new biologicals, uh, transgenic foods. Uh, so a lot of changes have happened in, uh, in the last 20 years that could explain the spike. Now, uh, in general, anaphylaxis is set to occur in one in 300 percent uh, uh, persons. Um, but at some point in life, you would say uh, probably 0.5% um, of the population have had an uh, introduction or experience of systemic anaphylaxis where they get uh, severe disease requiring emergency room visits. And if you look at the number of deaths, about almost a couple of thousand people die uh, in the U.S. every year, and some of them uh, are due to venom anaphylaxis, uh, and they had never recognized uh, they were allergic to venom, or, or very sadly, uh, food anaphylaxis that Hugh Sampson recorded in, in schools where uh, um, things went awfully wrong. Either the EpiPen was outdated, the EpiPen was missing uh, when the child went to look for it, uh, or the nurse who knew how to administer the EpiPen was off that particular day, and a new nurse came on board and who had no idea how to operate the EpiPen, and within minutes, their life was lost. So um, uh, anaphylaxis can be uh, pretty severe and uh, common in, the, in, in certain settings like schools. Now, it occurs in about 1% of all emergency department visits is what is, uh, you know, possibly to, uh, to happen. And if you look at the mortality rate of all cases of anaphylaxis, probably less than 2% of all patients will die. And a subset of them, as you said earlier, uh, are um, severe anaphylaxis cases uh, requiring uh, ICU uh, admissions. Now, severe anaphylaxis um, is, is easy to recognize in the emergency room and in the hospital. Uh, these people are usually hypotensive, uh, defined as blood pressure less than 90 millimeters of mercury, or less than 30% of the patient's early baseline in adults. And there are child-specific, age-specific uh, um, blood pressure uh, uh, measures that uh, you'll find in, in, in reviews. The second thing is hypoxemia with saturation less than 92%. And the most important uh, prognostic and ominous indicators are confusion, loss of consciousness, and fecal or urinary incontinence. When that happens, uh, when there's bladder and bowel incontinence, that often is a sign of uh, very severe anaphylaxis. If you look at the ICU admissions, there's some interesting data. Uh, a study from London showed uh, in about five years um, when they looked at um, their large uh, collection of hospitals in their uh, NHS system, uh, they found that uh, 1,300 patients uh, were admitted to the ICU for anaphylaxis, uh, but the uh, uh, optimistic finding was over 90% did survive with good ICU management and good care. And we'll discuss those aspects of uh, 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 intra-hospital care as we proceed with this uh, podcast. Uh, Modus U looked at uh, 38,000 patients in the emergen emergency department, and what he found was 11% roughly uh, one in 10, you can say, uh, required hospitalization. And out of that one in 10, 11%, about 5%, a small fraction of that landed up in the ICU. And less than 2% of those patients were admitted to the hospital, uh, landed up being intubated. 
and with less than 0.5% being fatal. So if you look at it, there's a general dilution of these. Uh, so a, a relatively common uh, emergency room uh, um, visit, uh, a small fraction, a tenth of them get into the hospital, and a smaller fraction of them, 120 of them, get into the ICU, and a very, very small fraction, like we said, over 90% will survive, and less than 10% of them uh, will, will die. Uh, of the disease. Now, risk factors for severe anaphylaxis, I'll very quickly go through this, and this would be the predictive markers that a clinician would look at when he's evaluating the patient. Um, did the pay person or the patient just get a parental allergen, an IV drug? And so, um, just to remind you, the time from administration of an IV drug to full cardiorespiratory arrest in fulminant anaphylaxis is only five minutes, because remember, it's given IV, and both mast cells, tissue-derived mast cells, as well as basophils can get recruited into a massive anaphylactic reaction with an outburst of mediators resulting in rapid cardiopulmonary arrest and, uh, and fatality. Uh, whereas with uh, something like uh, venoms, um, uh, like a bee sting or a yellow jacket sting, it's said to be 15 minutes, according to Fumfrey in his uh, fatal anaphylaxis studies in, in London, and if you look at the uh, time to fatal anaphylaxis uh, and cardiorespiratory arrest with foods, it's about 30 minutes because it goes through the GI tract processes, gets into the bloodstream. Uh, but of course, 30 minutes is an average and there are some children who can be very sick very quickly. So one is the type of uh, allergen in the, in, the, in the route in which it was administered. Secondly, um, patients who are on uh, two groups of drugs, beta blockers and ACE inhibitors. And we are very, very cautious as allergists and as practicing physicians to immediately call the PCP and make sure that they change the ACE inhibitor and the beta blocker uh, for two reasons. One, ACE inhibitors, as we know, uh, angiotensin converting enzyme is involved in bradykinin breakdown. And so you get hyperbradykininemia and bradykinin binding to bradykinin receptors can lead to capillary leak and lead to uh, a worsening of distributive shock So and angioedema. So that is one major aspect to remember. If they're on an ACE inhibitor that needs to be stopped right away and switch to a calcium channel blocker safest in acute settings. Um, and uh, and long-term, uh, with, with the caution, you can switch the patient to an ARB, uh, such as losartan, for example. The second uh, drug is the beta blocker. Now, beta blocker is important because endogenous uh, catecholamines are a, uh, a physiological mechanism uh, to hypovolemia and shock. And if you got a beta blocker on board, of course, uh, the endogenous uh, catecholamines are not able to bind to their receptor, uh, the beta one, beta two receptors. So you get uh, um, negative uh, inotrophic effects and you get uh, effects of myocardial depression as well as bronchospasm. But the most important thing is when the uh, beta adrenergic antagonist is sitting in the beta adrenergic receptor and blocking it, um, your adrenaline is not going to work. So these people often land, uh, land up getting a fairly progressive fulminant anaphylaxis. Uh, and the beta blocker has to be stopped and there's gonna be a half-life for the beta blocker. So this is gonna be a pretty dicey situation when you're in the ICU managing these patients. And we'll have a couple of caveats as we go through this podcast as what options we have in these scenarios. Um, the other risk factors are poorly controlled asthma, poorly controlled heart disease. So cardiopulmonary disease are definitely factors. And in fact, cognition uh, has been a risk factor, including for hypercapnic respiratory failure, uh, because of uh, impaired recognition of hypoxemia, dyspnea, 
or uh, the um, hypovolemia and dizziness. So the patient might not be able to complain to a caregiver that something is happening. The other risk factors are more um, are management related, a delayed administration of epinephrine, um, uh, a poor diagnosis of anaphylaxis, uh, or, uh, uh, or misdiagnosis of anaphylaxis, calling anaphylaxis uh, an asthma attack or an acute allergic reaction and not classifying it as anaphylaxis so that the proper treatment can be initiated right away. Excellent. And I think that just as a, as a summary of some of the pearls that you shared in terms of clinicians when they're facing these cases in the early, in the early phases is really to, to recognize, like you said, uh, in addition to the usual respiratory and cardiopulmonary symptoms that we can all recognize as intensivist, the, the loss of bowel and, and bladder continence is a big sign. Altered cognition, another big sign of severity. Um, risk factors that we should really be tuned into are the use of ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. And then from the perspective of what we control as physicians, and I think this is going to be a recurrent theme like you mentioned earlier, Guha, it's a delays in administration of epinephrine. That's a time-sensitive intervention that really, I mean, we need to emphasize over and over again. That's, uh, that's very true. And, you know, uh, just to touch on this point very quickly so I don't forget it, uh, when they look at outpatient administration of epinephrine um, and, you know, EpiPen devices were getting to be expensive and there was a time when uh, they were in fact short uh, supply uh, for the last few years, uh, we were asked to um, instruct patients to uh, train them in drawing adrenaline from a vial uh, or an ampule and they found that there was enormous delays and a mistaken di uh, administration of doses uh, when uh, this was given uh, uh, using syringe and needle. That's number one. The second point to be remem remembered is the dose of uh, epinephrine is 0.5 uh, cc or 0.5 milligram of the one in 1,000 um, um, concentration of epinephrine uh, weight per volume. And so what uh, is important is that the epinephrine only, uh, auto-inject only administers 0.3 milligrams. And so you're short of about 0.2 milligrams in very severe cases. And if you look at some of the UK data and some of the data coming from the US, um, children about 12 years can tolerate 0.5 milligrams of EpiPen uh, or epinephrine uh, acutely without having an adverse effect. So it's actually a very, very safe drug to use in systemic anaphylaxis. So I just wanted to raise that point um, that uh, without delay and even drawing it in a syringe, they found that experienced nurses draw it faster than doctors and doctors draw the epinephrine dose faster than patients do. So in that, uh, in that sequence. Well, I think this is a great um, segue to talk about the management of anaphylaxis in the ICU. And perhaps we could start, Guha, with diagnosis. And uh, the two things that, that I'm always interested in is um, establishing a diagnosis when it's not clear. Sometimes it's very obvious that somebody had an anaphylactic reaction. But like you said, sometimes there are delays in treatment because we don't recognize it. Or the other part is that there, there might be syndromes that present like anaphylaxis that, that, are, that are not anaphylaxis. So also talking about that differential diagnosis. Yes. So um, we'll, we'll touch on three things, Sergio, a couple of things I forgot to mention earlier on. One is the diagnostic criteria for anaphylaxis. And the criteria for anaphylaxis has also been modified. The first uh, uh, lovely criteria that has a great sensitivity and specificity for the diagnosis 
was created by the second uh, meeting of the NIAID and the Food Allergy Anaphylaxis Network. And basically, they came up with three criteria for anaphylaxis. But to make it simple, the Europeans have changed it and made it more simple. So bottom line is one is if you have mucocutaneous findings, hives, skin rashes, flushing, itching, with lip swelling or uh, uh, tongue swelling, combined with uh, any two of either respiratory, cardiac, or GI manifestations, you make the diagnosis of anaphylaxis. So uh, if you have um, mucocutaneous findings with, for example, uh, wheezing, uh, hypotension, uh, refractory nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, uh, you can make the diagnosis of anaphylaxis. Or a combination of any two of those, if you have uh, cutaneous, um, pulmonary, cardiovascular, and GI, and any two of those uh, uh, in a fairly established uh, pattern, and then you diagnose anaphylaxis. But skin findings alone uh, will, not, uh, will not diagnose anaphylaxis sufficiently enough. That's the first point I wanted to make in terms of the diagnostic criteria of anaphylaxis. Second is very quickly, um, we're going into the endotype and phenotype, which we didn't mention. I'll go through this very briefly, and there, uh, in the uh, review that I wrote for critical care medicine, if anybody wants to uh, refer to those, uh, but endotype is the mechanism, phenotype is the, the, the presentation of anaphylaxis. The commonest cause, as we know, is allergy, IgE-mediate and anaphylaxis. That is by far the commonest. And uh, typically it happens when somebody has uh, exposure to a food, latex, a bee sting, a medication, a certain um, uh, hormone, um, or um, a drug uh, that uh, they're known to be allergic to and they uh, have it accidentally ingested accidentally or uh, get introduced accidentally and they develop anaphylactic reactions. So that's the immune-mediated, IgA-mediated anaphylaxis. Now, that is characterized by mast cells releasing histamine and platelet activating factor and tryptase, which is a protease, very important marker for anaphylaxis, which we'll discuss later in terms of diagnosis and they also release a plethora of cytokines. The second uh, type of immune anaphylaxis is IgG-mediated anaphylaxis. Now, IgG-mediated anaphylaxis is not that commonly seen. It's mainly mediated by gamma globulin infusions, um, blood transfusions in certain uh, susceptible individuals, uh, certain chimeric monoclonal antibodies such as rituxan, for example, and the administration of aprotonin or dextran volume expanders have been linked to acute anaphylactic reactions mediated by IgG. In this case, they don't get as much histamine production as more platelet activating factor, which mediates capillary uh, leakability and uh, hypovolemia. Now, there are three or four other uh, classifications of anaphylaxis or causes. I won't go into great detail, and uh, Sergio, we can discuss these in, later, in detail later if there's time. But the most important thing of these are what's called contact system, uh, system of bradykine immediate and anaphylaxis. And we know that um, when the contact system, the clotting system is activated, factor 12 gets activated, and it activates bradykinin, and bradykinin binds to bradykinin receptor and causes capillary leak. Classic example was this was uh, with the contaminated heparin in 2007-2008, uh, Chinese heparin. Um, and I don't know, Sergio, if you remember that there was a clustering of anaphylactic events across the country, across Europe, uh, UK, 
Australia, US, uh, across countries across the world. And what they found was that the heparin was contaminated with a oversulfated chondroitin sulfate and the OSCS as it's called uh, was activating um, anaphylaxis by a very fascinating mechanism. It was activating uh, the uh, clotting cascade which then activated uh, the kinin system and then caused the anaphylactic-like presentation. So it's almost like IgG-mediated anaphylaxis. You get this is bradykinin-mediated. So you have the histamine and tryptase and the um, the cytokine-mediated anaphylaxis with IgE. Then you have the platelet-activating factor-mediated anaphylactic reactions with IgG and dextran and volume expanders. And then you have the uh, contact kinin system anaphylaxis with certain forms of uh, chondroitin sulfate and other material. And then uh, we have the complement-activated uh, uh, anaphylaxis, which is known as CARPA, complemented uh, uh, activation-related uh, pseudo-allergic reaction or pseudo-anaphylaxis, where the uh, complement product actually directly binds to mast cells and releases uh, mediators. Now, um, there is a whole host of mast cell disorders and cytokine-mediated anaphylactic disorders. I won't go into great detail in those. Uh, they're highly specialized, but the cytokine release syndrome or the uh, cytokine uh, storm reaction we see with COVID can occur with a variety of drugs, uh, can chemotherapeutics and monoclonal antibodies, and they're present with caprileak and uh, uh, wheezing and pulmonary edema and hypovolemia, hypertension, very similar uh, presentation. However, uh, they will have an acute phase response uh, combination. They'll have fever and chills and myalgia uh, complicating the presentation. So when you have that, uh, think of a cytokine-mediated uh, reaction. And these reactions do respond to, like, for example, as we know with uh, COVID, uh, uh, inhibition of the IL-6 pathway or glucocorticoids or uh, dexamethasone as we do for uh, COVID pneumonia. And then the mast cell mediated disorders are a whole a plethora clustering of disorders um, uh, characterized by uh, mast cell uh, um, autonomous function where the mast cells are very uh, trigger happy and release mediators at minor triggers or even without triggers uh, automatically. And, uh, and, and these patients are very prone to direct release, for example, opiates and certain drugs like vancomycin and the redneck syndrome, for example, uh, radio contrast media can directly release mediators from mast cells and lead to uh, histamine uh, and bradykinin and platelet activating factor release um, you know, with the resulting effects. Um, so in terms of the differential diagnosis of anaphylaxis, uh, which was raised, uh, the differential diagnosis of anaphylaxis um, is wide. The important thing to remember is that um, in the emergency room or in the ICU, if you meet the criteria for anaphylaxis, somebody has hives, lip edema, starts wheezing, drops uh, blood pressure, there's no doubt in your mind that's anaphylaxis. If they came out of the operating room and the anesthesiologist is wheeling the patient into the ICU and tells them that the patient dropped their blood pressure as soon as he introduced uh, uh, a rocuronium, uh, and you know that's a rocuronium anaphylaxis, and there's no doubt in those cases. Um, so they meet the criteria for anaphylaxis. Now, the question comes when you have atypical presentations, um, or it's not as clear, or like we said before, the skin manifestations are absent, 
And then you go to a wider group of uh, differential diagnosis. Of these, the most important would be something like a basovagal episode, uh, something like a pheochromocytoma, carcinoid syndrome, pulmonary embolism. And uh, we, uh, in the subspecialized world, see Munchausen strider and uh, uh, somatoform anaphylaxis, where uh, it's more of a psychosomatic disease and so on. Um, but you still think of these things, pulmonary embolism, microinfarction, they can present with capillary, uh, um, uh, with pulmonary edema and capillary leak and uh, with hypoxemia and wheezing and can present with an anaphylaxis-like uh, uh, presentation. And so that's uh, a thing to keep in mind. And I think, Sergio, you asked about the uh, perioperative anaphylaxis. Uh, very quickly, perioperative anaphylaxis is one of the most common reasons for ICU admissions. And the thing to keep in mind is perioperative anaphylaxis um, occurs probably in one in 10,000 cases. Uh, and in some situations, it's associated with high mortality. Older patients, people with cardiopulmonary disease, uh, those on beta blockade may not do as well with, uh, with uh, intraoperative or perioperative anaphylaxis. So the commonest causes include muscle relaxants, chlorhexidine, um, and the, uh, the NMDA group of drugs, uh, such as uh, rocuronium, uh, the neuromuscular blocking agent. When we admit a patient um, with a presumptive diagnosis of anaphylaxis in the ICU, are there any diagnostic tests that, that you would recommend that we consider? A lot of times we, we, we have the diagnosis and we treat them and we just do the, the usual test, but uh, for general ICU uh, diagnostic criteria. But is there anything specific that could help with the management of the anaphylaxis down the road? Yes, it's very important to uh, draw a tryptase level. The reason for the tryptase level, it's going to come back to you three days later. It helps you in two ways. One, if the patient is not responding, is getting progressively worse, and is getting into cardiopulmonary uh, failure, and he's on ECMO, it'd be nice to have tryptase that was elevated, uh, uh, even if it's two, three days into the illness, so that you confirm it's anaphylaxis and your management is uh, titrated towards uh, uh, management of anaphylaxis, and you're not worrying about a capillary leak or a Clarkson syndrome or some other. So it can be confusing in scenarios like that. The second important thing is post hoc diagnosis. So after the patient is discharged and sent home, uh, if the patient lands up with the allergist, hopefully he'll be referred to an allergist for further uh, elaboration of the history, diagnostic testing, and figuring out if it's intraoperative, what was the drug that caused it? Was it, was it chlorhexidine? Was it uh, uh, rocuronium? Was it latex? Was it the antibiotic the patient got in the operating room? Or, or was it a food or a venom uh, reaction the patient had uh, before he came into the emergency department? The allergist would like to have a tryptase level. And the tryptase level is a very specific marker for mast cells. It's a uh, uh, you just order tryptase. It's a, it measures total tryptase, alpha and beta tryptase. If the tryptase is very elevated during an anaphylactic event, then uh, the physician and the outpatient will draw another tryptase level. The tryptase level drops back to the normal range of six weeks later. Uh, it tells you there was an acute anaphylactic degranulation of mast cells, and so that confirms your diagnosis. And then the allergist just has to figure out what uh, triggered this reaction. So it, uh, there's a lot of clearing of the air, if you will, uh, and uh, the diagnosis becomes, uh, making the diagnosis becomes a more uh, a specific and clarified task. Um, the second important caveat is if the tryptase level goes up and doesn't really come back to normal, but stabilizes at a high level, let's say 
the normal triptase level is sort of to be 11.4, uh, which is what we accept as normal. If the level of triptase is 20 to 23, these people greater than 20 most likely have a mast cell disorder, uh, malignant disorder or clonal disorder mast cells. We call it systemic mastocytosis and various variants of systemic mastocytosis. So that is something to keep in mind. But a very fascinating discovery just five years ago um, by a, a group at NIH where, where they were getting referrals of anaphylaxis of uncertain etiology um, uh, from across the country and across the world, and they had a clustering of patients. Uh, they found um, a small group of patients uh, had uh, uh, a condition known as hereditary alpha-tryptosemia. Now, it's a hereditary condition. It's autosomal dominant disorder. And these people have instructed just two tryptase genes have three or four tryptase genes. So they have gene duplication. So as a result, they are more, uh, have more anaphylactic potential. And now this is considered a huge marker and a huge uh, predisposition for anaphylaxis of any kind, whether you're in the ICU, the operating room, whether you're allergic to... Uh, penicillin and you get the antibiotic or whether you're allergic to bee stings. Now, it's called HAT syndrome or H-A-T-S, and this gives me a great opportunity to introduce this syndrome to you guys, and I hope some of you will go back and read about it, fascinating syndrome. And uh, it is very testable because uh, there are several companies now commercially uh, that can just do a Google search for HATS or hereditary alpha tryptosemia testing, and you'll get the uh, the companies. And it's about $120 to do, but it will define a genetic basis uh, in these people. So I wanted to raise all those points um, to you guys. And uh, important to remember is that a patient can have an underlying HATS plus uh, mastocytosis, HATS plus bee sting allergy, HATS plus a complement mediated anaphylactic event. HATS plus a kinin uh, response, or HATS plus a cytokine mediated response. And so those people will be doubly sick and more likely, we believe, uh, to get into the ICU settings or have fatal anaphylaxis. And this is obviously a, a very relevant point from a patient-centered perspective, because like, like you mentioned, getting this level is not going to help us maybe immediately in most cases in the ICU, but has tremendous value for the allergists when they follow up and really defining what happened and what needs to happen in the future to prevent a, a recurrent anaphylactic reaction. So, so that's a great point, Iguha. Thanks for really sharing that with us. And I will definitely include not only the excellent review that you did for critical care medicine in the, sh in, in, in the show notes as a link, but also something on HAT syndrome, which is something that I am not familiar with and definitely will, will read upon. Sure. And then just to mention in, in the, um, if you don't think it's anaphylaxis, it's best to uh, contact a uh, endocrinologist who can look for uh, weird syndromes, you know, metanephrines and uh, calcitonin and uh, medullary carcinoma of the thyroid and carcinoid syndrome, uh, which will require its own uh, evaluation. Excellent. So why don't we step now into the realm of, of treatment, which like everything uh, in medicine, Sometimes people have a very simplistic uh, view that might not be based on science as we learn more and more. And as, as, as also you have shared with us already, the layers, right, of the immune background gets, gets uh, more complicated and maybe not every case reacts the same to the same medications. But there is a general therapeutic approach for most of these anaphylactic cases that come to the ICU. And why don't you tell us your framework and, and, and start there, Guha? 
Yes. So um, I have a little algorithm uh, in the um, um, the review that I wrote, but I want to first talk a little bit about uh, epinephrine or adrenaline. Um, uh, it's a endogenous hormone, as we all know. It's the original fear, fight, flight hormone, and that's what makes your heart race and uh, your blood pressure go up or when you have an anxiety reaction. Now, epinephrine is life-saving in anaphylaxis. So uh, to administer epinephrine, one, you have to have a concrete diagnosis. You're very firm in your diagnosis, and uh, and you're not uh, wishy-washy, and you know this is anaphylaxis based on criteria. You made the diagnosis. Number two, uh, when you give uh, epinephrine, there are two aspects to epinephrine administration. One is uh, epinephrine when it's given in the field, uh, when it's given in the emergency department, or a naive patient who's uh, rushed in from the operating room with intraoperative hypotension and uh, cardiorespiratory collapse, and the anesthesiologist basically wheels the patient and said, I haven't done anything for this patient. Guys, get started right away. I think it's anaphylaxis. Um, that scenario, that's the first scenario where you're going to give the first dose of epinephrine in the naive patient. And how much do you give? The dose is it's one in 1,000, okay, milligrams per milliliter. And it's, um, it used to be um, uh, in, in ratios before, but because of confusion, uh, the FDA, NIAID, and other um, uh, players in this uh, uh, decision-making process decided to go to uh, milligram per milliliter, uh, which is easier to um, understand and follow. So the vial that you need is one milligram per milliliter, okay? And that's, you, you're going to give 0.5 milligrams IM in the outer aspect of the thigh, the vastus lateralis. And that's the place where the studies have shown the absorption is greatest because of the large muscle mass, as well as the vascularity, is going to access the circulation right away. Now, two caveats. One is we never use subcutaneous IP anymore. We used to do this about 15, 20 years ago, but over the last decade, it's changed and we give only IM epinephrine. Second, if you don't have... 0.5 milligrams, you don't have the one in 1,000 epi, and you don't have time to measure out and break the um, ampule or draw the vial, um, just use the EpiPen auto-injector, which is present in most uh, acute care settings. If you don't, I would uh, encourage you guys to have a uh, the pharmacy uh, give you a small anaphylaxis kit that can be with a head nurse or a place where you guys can access very easily. That's what I do. We as allergists do lots of challenges to drugs and medications, and we make sure that this is readily available. So you need that one in 1,000 uh, epinephrine. If you can't, you need the EpiPen, which injects 0.3 milligrams in today's world uh, IM uh, directly into the thigh. In little kids, you're going to get 0.15 milligrams. Okay, that's an, uh, the first point I want to make. The second point I want to make is that in some cases, the epinephrine might not work. And why would it not work? One, when the patient's hypovolemic in, in shock and cardiorespiratory arrest distributed or mixed shock, and he's not got enough circulation. So the epinephrine that you give in the peripheral muscle is not reaching uh, the circulation fast enough. In those scenarios, Sergio, uh, you would consider giving IV epinephrine. Now, um, some of the early guidelines talked about bolus epinephrine. Uh, we don't believe in boluses anymore, except in as part of an ACLS protocol for um, uh, cardiorespiratory arrest. Uh, but giving IV epinephrine, which is basically one milligram uh, epinephrine, one ml diluted in 1,000 milliliters of uh, 
dextrose, 5% dextrose, a D5 uh, normal saline uh, can be run IV at the rate of about 1 to 10 micrograms uh, per minute. And that uh, can replace uh, the uh, um, sub-QFP if you're not able to get uh, uh, the uh, sub-QFP to work, uh, the IMFP to work. Second thing is when they're on a beta blocker. And we'll talk about what we do when there's a beta block on board and there are options we have. The third thing to remember is in very obese people, the needle might not reach far enough. And there's a lot of discussion on the length of the needle and the dose. So you're going to need a higher dose for obese or large build people up to 0.4 milligrams. Um, so that's the first aspect of the management, uh, Sergio. So the, uh, when you give the IV epinephrine, it's important not to piggyback it because you want a very carefully titrated dose and you want to make sure that it's run at the uh, 0.5 to 1 milliliters per kilogram per hour or 1 to 10 micrograms uh, per minute uh, um, uh, dose um, when they go through it. The second aspect of this is uh, giving high flow oxygen. Um, and oxygen is important to keep a, a saturation about 94 to 98%. And this uh, ICU... Uh, Nurses and doctors and critical care uh, intensivists are pretty familiar with. I'm not going to go into detail there. And then assessing the airway is important. Uh, it can be done either by nasopharyngoscopy or uh, uh, other forms of uh, airway visual visualization, getting anesthesia or ENT to help you if you need help. And uh, going in for early intubation if you think the airway is occluded and there's massive angioedema, which could make it very difficult. Now, if intubation is not possible, you're going to go to something like uh, uh, front of the neck airway, a cricothyrotomy or tracheostomy uh, to maintain uh, oxygenation. The second aspect is, this is the oxygen part. The third aspect is the bronchospasm. And for that, uh, intermittent or continuous albuterol can be given. And the posture is important. Uh, one caveat about posture, Sergio, is, um, and I, I uh, present case uh, studies uh, with posture because there have been cases where the patient comes in in, in uh, pretty uh, fulminant uh, anaphylaxis to the ICU and uh, the doctors uh, order the FE, two doses have been given, the IV has been started, the oxygen was given, uh, albuterol nebulizer, uh, continuous uh, albuterol nebulization started, and the nurse and the patient says he needs to urinate and the nurse comes by and uh, you're sitting and writing notes in, this, in the room next door and uh, the nurse uh, has the, the, the um, uh, hospital bed moved up. The patient has moved up to a sitting position and she's trying to put the Foley catheter and the patient goes into cardiac standstill. And what happens is the so-called empty heart syndrome. And these people are so massively hypovolemic due to capillary leak and post-capillary venular endothelial uh, dilatation uh, because of the gap junctions and the adherence junctions opening up uh, that all the fluid has leaked out uh, into the extravascular space. So they're massively hypovolemic and they're just hanging on by a thread with endogenous catecholamines and your IV fluids and the, the adrenaline you gave. And we just sit them upright uh, that puts them into complete, complete cardiac standstill, and they've been fatalities from Frias recorded many fatalities. So the posture is very important, and keep them, uh, keeping them recumbent very important. If they're pregnant, you move them to one side. So that's the third aspect of management uh, in the ICU. And the fourth aspect is uh, the use of Benadryl and uh, glucocorticoids. Uh, well, like we said before, Sergio, um, 
in many ERs, um, as a reflex, doctors who haven't kept up with some of the guidelines will immediately administer uh, Benadryl and will give a dose of Solimedrol, start an albuterol nebulizer, give some oxygen, and go in to see the next patient and fail to give the epinephrine. So we believe that that's the biggest failure in anaphylaxis management. And as I promised, we came back to this uh, fact. And if you look at the uh, study that Wood did, uh, Bob Wood uh, worked with them at Johns Hopkins uh, uh, a couple of decades ago, very smart uh, man. Uh, he's uh, done many studies in these areas in food-related anaphylaxis. And what he found in a telephone study, random study of a thousand patients um, who had no history of anaphylaxis, uh, and then thousand patients with a history of anaphylaxis, what they found is that less than half of them were prescribed an epinephrine auto-injector, even though they had a history of anaphylaxis. And those who had a history of anaphylaxis, only about 20% of them gave themselves the epinephrine because they themselves self um, uh, misdiagnosed their case, or they did not uh, um, uh, get, uh, recognize the fact that they were going into a full-blown anaphylaxis syndrome and waited until it was too late. So uh, this is an important point is to, uh, it's epinephrine, 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 that's it. And right up front, every five minutes, you're gonna give the 0.3 to 0.5 cc's IM, and that's gonna be important. These are adjunct devices. So when do you use steroids and when do you use uh, Benadryl and Fimodidine? Now, uh, right now, I would promise you that 90% of the ICUs, 90% of emergency departments in the country will give epinephrine. And if there's, if there's urticaria, there's uh, hypertension, they're gonna start the H1H2 block and they're gonna start dexamethasone. Does dexamethasone help with biphasic uh, reaction reduction? Studies have shown no. Uh, if you give steroids, we used to think that one reason to give IV steroids is to decrease the biphasic reaction that occurs six hours later. Remember, we talked about the uniphasic, biphasic, and the protracted uh, malignant anaphylaxis. Um, but no, steroids don't seem to block it. The only thing that blocks biphasic disease is early administration of epinephrine. So epinephrine is a theme of today's presentation. If there's any one take-home point. When do you give steroids? Steroids are best given when they have steroid responsive angioedema of the airways, uh, severe urticaria, uh, or poorly controlled asthma. If a patient has a history of prior asthma, comes in with severe bronchospasm, he's gonna dramatically respond to prednisone in a few hours, and that might forestall his intubation, mechanical ventilation, barotrauma, and all the consequences of uh, uh, ventilating these very sick patients. So that's a scenario where you would give steroids. When the patient has prior asthma, the patient has urticaria or has tongue or lip swelling or angioedema of the throat, you could do that. Uh, the angioedema of the throat is another indication for uh, nebulized epinephrine that seems to be effective. Racemic epinephrine 0.5 milliliters to 0.75 milliliters can be put in a nebulizer and that also makes your intubation a little easier, just a little caviar or side trick, if you will. And then when do you give uh, H1H to block it? Now, um, uh, so a couple of the doctors I worked with at Johns Hopkins uh, are trained at NIAID, and at that uh, uh, time, um, just a decade before I trained with them, uh, there was a study where they injected endotoxin, created shock, and they found that when they gave H1H to block it, they were able to normalize blood pressures uh, better. And of course, no, we don't do those studies anymore. Um, however, that study has stood the test of time, and for a long period of time, uh, H1H2 blockade, steroids, 
uh, um, which followed the administration of epinephrine and fluids and oxygen was the uh, scenario that we followed for anaphylaxis. But now we know that H1H2 blockade does nothing to uh, anaphylaxis in terms of uh, cardiopulmonary disease, uh, does nothing in terms of hypotension, hypoxemia, uh, and doesn't really help with the correction of the vascular parameters. However, uh, when patient has diffuse erythema, extensive pruritus, extensive urticaria, or what we refer to as histaminergic angioedema. These are people who have angioedema that's very responsive to histamine. These are typical allergic patients who have anaphylactic reaction, an allergic reaction to bee sting, or an allergic reaction to food, and they're present with uh, lip or tongue swelling. They are more histaminergic and respond to antihistamines, as opposed to bradykinergic angioedema, uh, which is due to like an ACE inhibitor. Uh, they are usually res uh, resistant to epinephrine and to antihistamines. So antihistamines is a consideration, but it's a, a third-tier drug. After you're given fluids, oxygen, and uh, posture, and IV fluids, and uh, epinephrine right up front, uh, you're going to give H1H to block it at that point for these other indications we talked about. And then uh, we come to... Uh, the refractory patient. Uh, Sergio, do you want me to go to the refractory patient Yeah, now? actually, I was going to ask you about that. You, you did mention that refractory cases are those who don't respond to appropriate dosing and administration of epinephrine, but clearly that is a, a case I think that we would like to discuss in terms of what are other management options that we have and maybe mention some of the special drugs that can also be utilized in these cases. Yes. So uh, when uh, you've done all this right, and so uh, the patient is transferred to the ICU. Um, the patient is on oxygen. Uh, he's got a, uh, a mask that's delivering high flow oxygen. Uh, he's breathing a little better. Uh, his uh, uh, blood pressures are uh, responding. Uh, and his systolic is, uh, mean arterial pressure is now slowly increasing. And the uh, uh, patient's looking a little bit more comfortable. And you say, okay, I think uh, uh, we can now uh, watch him. All of a sudden, he begins to deteriorate again, either due to biphasic re, uh, response or because uh, he has a, reached a point in his uh, catecholamine uh, um, um, protective mechanism where there's a failure of the endogenous mechanisms and the hypovolemia uh, takes over. And as a result, it goes into pump failure, myocardial depression. And there are two complications you have with these people. One is known as the Kunis syndrome, which is a vasospasm of the coronary arteries that leads to mitral ischemia. And the Takotsubo uh, cardiomyopathy, as you uh, folks in the ICU probably know, which is a reversible ischemic uh, uh, dysfunction of the myocardium, uh, leading to either anterior or inferior, depending on uh, uh, Takotsubo or the reverse Takotsubo. Uh, all these things can happen, pump failure due to leukotrienes and cytokines, uh, 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 depressive cytokines and depressive mechanisms. Um, they go into worsening hypovolemia. How do you manage this patient? You've already given them uh, the epinephrine IM, you give them oxygen, fluids, uh, and all that, and they're deteriorating. So two things to quickly look at. One, are they on blood pressure pills, ACE inhibitors, and beta blockers? Um, uh, like I said, this is the first thing to look at as you look at these cofactors in these patients. And uh, the beta blocker needs to be stopped, ACE inhibitor needs to be stopped, but these drugs have half-life, so what are you going to do now? So two things you can do. One is um, you can use glucagon to bypass the uh, beta adrenergic receptor, 
which directly activate cyclic AMP and look around is present in the insulin hypoglycemia kits that are readily available. One to five milligrams can be given in these people and will buy you time until the beta blockers washed out of the system. And you can also start IV pressors. The second thing you can do is IV pressors. We talked about the IV epinephrine, uh, one milliliter and thousand milliliters of D5 uh, uh, or uh, normal saline. And remember that it's one in 1,000, you take uh, one milliliter and dilute it to 1,000. Uh, and so uh, it's a very dilute solution and you give one to 10 micrograms titrated to a mean arterial pressure of 65 uh, millimeters. So that can be done. Now, if you have something like uh, intraoperative anaphylaxis where the ER, uh, the uh, anesthesiologist tells you that uh, this happened as soon as he injected the rocuronium and he didn't have time and he brought the patient over and leaves him in your care, you can use this drug called Sugamadex, uh, four milligrams per kilogram IV, which specifically is a cyclodextrin, it's called a relaxant uh, binder, and basically quickly reverses the, ex uh, the effects of uh, rocuronium, uh, the NMBA, uh, the neuromuscular blocking agent. So that can be done very quickly. And if you continue to have hypotension and refractory hypotension, that's when a salvage mechanisms come into play. Uh, by this time, you've been battling this patient for the probably last four, six, eight hours, and the patient's now slowly uh, tending to go downhill, and you have some options uh, to bring him back. Uh, one is there have been studies, uh, anecdotal studies. Again, I got to uh, stress right up front, because of the fulminant nature of anaphylaxis, the dramatic nature of the syndrome, the rapid evolution of the disease, and the rapid onset uh, and progression uh, to cardiorespiratory arrest, uh, there has not been good uh, randomized trials, and you can uh, realize why. Uh, as a result, we've uh, developed only ex uh, experience-based uh, recommendations, uh, case uh, cohort-based recommendations, and in rare studies, outpatient studies, or randomized uh, studies that we extract some of this information. But now we have a lot of pressors, and there have been some encouraging data in the literature recently on the use of vasopressin. And uh, vasopressin, you guys use in the ICU, I'm sure, uh, but it binds to uh, the AVP receptors in both the uh, blood vessels uh, as well as uh, the uh, other sites, um, uh, causing uh, vasoconstriction and reversal of uh, some of the findings that you have in uh, refractory hypovolemia and hypertension and pump failure. So the AVP receptor binding to the uh, vasopressin uh, result in uh, reversal and synergy in some cases with epinephrine. So you can have an epinephrine drip and or add a vasopressin drip at, uh, at appropriate rates, uh, red rates of 0.01 to 0.04 units per uh, minute. Uh, but you guys would know those doses much better and can be given. Uh, and that seems to, uh, in, in some studies, almost 40, 50% of the patients uh, quickly normalized their blood pressures uh, after vasopressin was given. Again, these anecdotal reports in small case clusters. Now, there is a role for uh, methylene blue. There have been reports, uh, a lot of reports, uh, probably uh, 50, 60 across uh, various uh, journals and across various countries, where methylene blue uh, rapidly reverses anaphylaxis. And what methylene blue does is it salvages nitric oxide. We didn't discuss this up front, but what happens is when you have an allergic reaction, 
the allergen binds the IgE, IgE then binds the FCER1 receptor, it causes what's called cross-linking. That gives a signal um, to the mast cell. The mast cell goes through a signaling cascade, releases calcium. Calcium causes degranulation, as well as activation of uh, the nitric, uh, uh, nitric oxide uh, expression in endothelial blood vessels. Uh, the granules uh, and the granular contents like TNF and histamine bind to uh, TNF receptors, PAF receptors, and histamine receptors on the blood vessel wall and the endothelium. And this signal transduction leads to activation of ENOS. And ENOS then elaborates nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is responsible for part of the capillary leak and the hypovolemia and the hypertension vasodilatation that you see. And uh, looks like uh, methylene blue is a good salvage mechanism uh, by activating uh, uh, guanocyclic AMP and uh, uh, negating the effects of uh, uh, the uh, uh, cascade created by nitric oxide. So methylene blue is infused uh, in doses, half the dose of uh, Sugamidex is basically two milligram per kilogram body weight. Sugamidex is at four milligram per kilogram body weight. So that's how you do this. Uh, and these are all salvage protocols. And ultimately, uh, if all else fails, uh, the patient will end up with uh, uh, the ultimate treatment in the ICU, which is uh, uh, extracorporeal life support systems, and uh, and then uh, uh, a slow uh, management after that, based on uh, uh, you know various parameters and uh, you know and getting them out of that. That's uh, totally an ICU uh, intensivist uh, uh, regulated area. So Sergio, I will Absolutely. stop and over to you. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 I think that Guha obviously um, a lot of uh, of of interesting salvage therapies that, like you said, obviously uh, are based mostly on anecdotal reports, but that we have utilized with success in very extreme cases, and I think are important things to have in the back of our mind for those refractory cases that, despite appropriate initial treatment, continue to deteriorate because they might actually help uh, patients. And specifically, I think with the glucagon and the Sugamidex, right, which are directed at specific um, uh, drugs that might be present, it's important for all the intensivists to, to have this in their in their uh, armamentarium for treating patients with anaphylaxis. I, I do believe that it's worth emphasizing one more time, epinephrine, 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 and that uh, this is a time-sensitive intervention. And like you said, it, it is not uncommon to see people giving glucocorticoids, giving histamine blockers, yet failing to give the appropriate doses of epinephrine for these cases. So just important to always start with what really works and, and make sure that the most important thing that patients need is given appropriately. So a lot of great information there. The last thing I wanted to ask you about acute treatment, Guha, before we, we kind of start wrapping up, is could you make any comments on patients with stroke who receive TPA and then have an anaphylactic reaction, which is not common, but can be quite dramatic? Yes. So, you know, when the patient comes in with an acute uh, uh, need for an ICU care and then gets a secondary anaphylactic event uh, due to your intervention, that, of course, is a nightmare scenario. Uh, none of us want to be handling that, but it really happens. Now, um, those who are admitted for stroke, a small fraction of these people, uh, less than 2%, one in 50 people who get TPA will anaphylax to TPA and develop a massive angioedema response, uh, even as they're undergoing thrombolysis. 
And uh, a lot of this might be mediated by the kinin cascade. Now, uh, I'm going to tell you that uh, probably in the next few years, we're going to have more studies on kinin inhibition, platelet acting factor inhibition, and we'll have new drugs uh, in that sequence and cascade um, uh, to control those reactions. But right now, <coughs> the, the best we can do is to discontinue the, uh, the TPA and administer antihistamine steroids, epinephrine, and uh, if they've been intubated, uh, make sure that with the TPA uh, that you avoid uh, uh, hematomas and bleeding uh, into the airway because they've already been thrombolyzed. So uh, it is a hairy scenario, um, no good answers, uh, but I just want to put it out there that this is something to keep in mind that patients who come in for one event could anaphylax to the intervention for that event, and you have a secondary uh, consequence that's more severe than the primary event itself and requires stopping up the drug. That's the first thing you do in all of these anaphylaxis cases, whether it's an antibiotic or rocuronium or uh, uh, it's a uh, IVIG or a blood transfusion product, um, you're going to stop that drug, number one, and number two, you're going to um, do all the management of anaphylaxis, realizing that the primary disorder that you were treating might actually get worse. Uh, what if you uh, had a patient with infection and uh, you give an antibiotic, the anaphylaxis to the antibiotic, and you got to give them steroids, for example? All these scenarios are difficult scenarios, um, but uh, this is just presenting a broad framework, uh, Sergio. Uh, just to keep this in mind, and probably in the future we'll have radikinin inhibitors. We already have uh, three drugs available in the market uh, for um, uh, C1 inhibitor and the bradykinin pathway that we use for hydrity angioedema. They have not been studied in anaphylaxis uh, and in, in situations like these complicated patients with TPA reactions, which might be kinin-mediated, and so we might have more drugs uh, uh, in the future, calicrine, uh, bradykinin pathway inhibitors may be available in the future. Excellent. And I would like to ask you uh, if you could give us some some advice and comments on post-ICU management, and mostly Guha from the perspective that I recently had a, a young female who had an anaphylactic, severe anaphylactic reaction during an orthopedic surgery, probably to the antibiotics, obviously being young and the kind of a a low-risk case, it caused a tremendous stress for the anesthesia team. She did well and she was discharged home. And that's one of the few cases or situations where we might discharge people from the ICU 24 hours later. But what, what are the things that we uh, should be making sure that they get? Um, obviously starts with allergy and immunology referral, but are there any other things? Um, and, you, and you also mentioned some of the the drugs, that, some of the, the diagnostic tests, such as the triptis level, that might be very helpful for outpatient management. But what are recommendations in that area? So um, um, one is um, uh, when they get discharged, um, the patient uh, has been through a pretty morbid event, right? So it's a pretty scary. Uh, when anaphylaxis happens, we call it a sense of impending doom. It's, it's not like anything else anybody has ever experienced before because very rapidly the whole body is going out of whack. Uh, the flushing happens, the hives happen, the itching furiously, the tongue begins to swell, they can't breathe, the, tight, uh, the, the neck tightens up and uh, they start getting dizzy and some of them actually pass out and lose consciousness. So it's a very traumatic event for them and they, and they leave the hospital with a sense of fear, almost like our COVID patients do, 
uh, lead with, with great dread. So one is educate them about anaphylaxis, uh, very briefly uh, uh, direct them towards uh, uh, the Quad AI website, the anaphylaxis, food allergy, anaphylaxis network website, NIAID website, uh, at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, a lot of these places will give very useful information that uh, a, a sibling or a kid or a distant relative can pull up for them as they're recuperating at home. The second thing is to have some sort of an anaphylaxis management plan until they see their primary care and definitely get referred to an allergist. In some studies, when they're discharged from the ICU, less than 20% get referred to an allergist and less than 40% are given EpiPen uh, auto-injectors. So giving the EpiPen auto-injector is one aspect of this uh, discharge. The second aspect is uh, describing how they use it. Now you can get pharmacy involved. You guys are busy in the ICU and pharmacists are always ready to do this. So uh, this uh, education about how to use EpiPen is important. Uh, the EpiPen auto-injectors and the generic EpiPens that are now available, you take it out of the uh, case, uh, make sure that it's viable and the expiry date is not exceeded. And uh, the patient has to remove the, the gray cap in the, in the back and uh, the blue cap in front. And basically with one big uh, movement, uh, strike it against the thigh and it will inject uh, the 0.3 milligrams of epinephrine. And you hold it down for about 10 seconds, you pull it out, and then you massage the area so that you allow the medicine to uh, spread evenly into the, the muscle and the tissue. Um, and uh, a second dose can be given if they're far away from the emergency room, realizing that uh, a small fraction of them, uh, 20 to 30% of them, will get symptomatic again as they're uh, uh, heading to the ER and will need a second dose. So that uh, uh, um, education is important and you can recruit your pharmacist to do that, uh, but make sure that the education is done and have some sort of an anaphylaxis management plan because if uh, they go home uh, uh, after ICU care and uh, somebody, a caregiver or somebody has to be uh, educated on uh, what to do if there's a relapse of these uh, events and when to do allergy blocking drugs and use EpiPen and go back to the hospital. And a referral to an allergist uh, is important. Is there any value, Guha, in sending them home with a steroid taper? I've seen people do that or more antihistamines. So uh, if you have a, a full-blown anaphylactic event, the patient's being discharged, they have urticaria, they angioedema, uh, I think that it's reasonable. I don't see any harm in sending them home, even though the current guidelines don't really recommend it, but the, the evidence is weak for that Sergio. So we don't have great evidence for or against this process. They're recommending against it, but they say the evidence is weak uh, uh, to make a decision. As a result, I would say that's reasonable to send them home on a, a five-day uh, or a seven-day prednisone taper, H1H, to block it so that the transition home is a lot smoother. Excellent. So very important in terms of educating people on the use of the EpiPen once they leave, but also making sure that they have proper follow-up with allergy and immunology. Uh, Guha, uh, thanks so much for, for all your, your expertise and sharing um, so, such wonderful pearls in terms of managing this fascinating disease, which is anaphylaxis. We'd like to close the podcast by asking our guests some questions unrelated to the clinical topic. Uh, would that be okay? Uh, yes, Sergio. So my first question relates to books that have influenced you the most or books that you have gifted most often to others. So um, 
I'll tell you a book that I read a lot. And so um, I've dealt in spirituality um, because medicine is a chaotic practice and uh, our day-to-day life is difficult. And as a balance, I use music and uh, exercise, uh, but I also I use spirituality, not religion as much as spirituality. And there was a beautiful book called Everyday Zen that I used to read a lot. And the, and the book begins, the first page begins, Joko Beck, she's no more. She passed away three years ago. I actually went and met her in San Diego where she had the Zen Center of San Diego and she ran that center. A very beautiful, calm person and a calm demeanor. And I used to talk to her on the phone and then I went and met her. And uh, so I gave that book to many people. The first page begins with uh, this line. It says, uh, my dog doesn't worry about tomorrow, but I do, you know. Um, and that's the uh, the uh, conundrum we have as human beings because we do worry, regret the past and worry about the future. And uh, uh, with medicine being a tough field and we come back to our lives, I think we need a calming influence. So I use that. Another uh, favorite book of mine I used to read was Jonathan Livingston's Sequel by Richard Bach. It's a beautiful book about how to overcome your limitations and Fletcher Siegel and the way he um, moves out of his wingtip, wingtip mentality into infinitude. He moves, you know, beyond the limitations of the mind uh, framework. Um, and as a poet, I've read uh, a lot of Indian poetry, but uh, the point that influenced me the most was T.S. Eliot in the Wasteland. And I've read that a lot, written during the chaos of World War II, uh, when uh, England was being bombed and there was... Uh, uh, no food, and they were at the throes of the end of World War II, and he wrote The Wasteland, which won him the Nobel Prize. And he, he was an Indologist, and he quotes a lot of Indian spirituality in the Upanishads there. So that, uh, um, those are some of the books that come to mind. There were a lot more, uh, Sergio, but I just thought I'd throw those out to you. Excellent. I think it's a nice, it's a nice uh, group, and we'll, we'll put links in the, in the show notes. Um, I've heard other people talk about Everyday Sen, I definitely want to pick it up. I have read, I mean, a little bit of T.S. Eliot. And I also, I have not read the Richard Bach book. So uh, definitely interested in always picking up new new reads. So thanks for sharing that. The second question, Guha, relates to, to something that you believe to be true in medicine or in life that many other people don't believe or don't act like they believe. So, you know, I, I listened to a talk, um, Sergio, uh, I think almost 18, 20 years ago, who was a psychologist being interviewed on um, a very nice uh, channel uh, from California. And it was Saturday afternoon. I used to listen to that channel a lot. And the psychologist uh, was asked the question, um, do you believe in empathy? You know, And so the psychologist said, actually, there's empathy and there's compassion, you know. And in medical school, we are always asked to teach empathy, right, to students and residents and fellows training with you. And empathy is to feel like you, like the patient would feel, so that when you talk to the patient, uh, you 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 hone in your bedside manners and your demeanor, your words, the way you speak to the patient, uh, all reflect your empathy. But she said, actually, empathy is not sufficient. She says a higher order empathy is compassion, okay? And then I said, wait a minute, what is this? And so she said, uh, even somebody who tortures somebody, you know, uh, in uh, uh, North Korea or uh, 
uh, some uh, horrendous regimes uh, where torture was done, like in Vietnam when uh, uh, Senator McCain, uh, you know, was tortured for years, and we've seen movies of torture. Um, she said that even the torturer has empathy. He knows that if he pulls the nail, that person is going to have pain. Compassion is wanting to alleviate the pain, you know, want to actually go and relieve that pain. And, uh, and that is the higher um, degree of empathy. Compassion would be uh, what you would reach for as a physician, especially in the ICU. Um, compassion for yourself is important too, I would say, by the way. Compassion for other caregivers around you, nurses and uh, respiratory techs and uh, guys who manage the ventilators uh, and the phlebotomists, but compassion most of all for the patient who's actually undergoing the disease. And I want to briefly tell a very quick story uh, from the Buddhist archives, uh, Sergio. Um, so Buddha had a, uh, his cousin took care of him. His cousin's name was Ananda, his, uh, was his uh, um, a cousin's sister's son who went, uh, you know, to live the homeless life and learn about uh, love and compassion from the great master of Buddha 25, 2700 years ago now. And uh, so um, Ananda asked Buddha once, um, 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 sir, you keep saying compassion, compassion. You said everything about life is compassion. Is compassion your main teaching? And the Buddha looks at him, smiles, and says, no, Ananda, compassion is not my main teaching. Ananda shot, his jaw drops. He said, but I thought you always said compassion. And you said everybody needs to have compassion. Is that not your main teaching? And the Buddha looks at him, smiles, and says, Ananda, compassion is not the main teaching. It's the only teaching. <laughs> and so the important thing to understand is that a skilled physician, diagnostic skills, all that is great, uh, but you complete the circle with compassion. So the second aspect I wanted to mention, Sergio, is something that people don't understand, uh, that too in this world that we live in is, uh, you know, um, that we are in the web of life, and I truly believe it. The plankton in the, in the oceans, the earthworm in the, uh, in the mud, uh, the bird uh, that's raising his little um, uh, chicks in a nest in the tree, the bee that's got a nest, uh, you, me, uh, the deer in the forest, we're all connected. The trees, the mountains, we're all connected in a web of life, you know. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, Chief Seattle, a very wise man uh, uh, going to the, um, uh, the Native Americans uh, many, uh, three, four hundred years ago, uh, he said that what we do to the web of life, we do to ourselves. And I firmly believe that with the pandemics and all that we're having, a man has destroyed the habitat, destroyed uh, uh, the caves and the dwellings and invaded uh, rivers and streams and uh, polluted the oceans. As a result, the intermediary hosts for these viruses have gotten extinct, uh, bats and pangolins and all of those, uh, you know, intermediary hosts, and therefore uh, by uh, uh, the need to survive, um, uh, the virus has mutated, and the ecosystem destruction has been cited very often recently uh, in the uh, spread of pandemics. And so, as human beings, we have to look at the world differently. We have to understand that we live in an interconnected universe, and we're not just individual people living individual lives. So. Those were the two things I wanted to raise, Sergio. 
Excellent. And I think that obviously, like like you mentioned, um, very relevant to our lives on everyday basis, but also with the distinction between empathy and compassion and the need to be compassionate to ourselves and to others, I think uh, really goes to the fiber of what we do at the bedside. Guha, it's really been a pleasure to talk with you. I learned a lot today and I want to thank you for your generosity with your knowledge and with your time and I look forward to talking to you on the podcast again soon. Thank you, Sergio. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.